0: Look, Melbourne is a great city. If you love food, it's got the greatest selection of restaurants in the country. Every nationality just about under the sun is represented. And it's a wonderful diaspora of cultures that we have in this city.
1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode in our podcast series, Moving to expat land, my guest today is John Summers from McCrae Property in Melbourne. During the course of John's 40 years of experience in the Melbourne property industry, the central theme has been the valuation, sale and purchase of residential and commercial real estate. In the 1990s, as head of Biggins and Scott's emerging commercial division, John established himself as a hardened negotiator with a focus On attention to detail today these attributes enable John to provide the full skill set necessary to achieve a successful property transaction a founding director of McRae property John is respected in the industry and brings a well-rounded approach to satisfying your property requirements welcome John and thanks for joining us today
0: thank you John
1: Please tell us a bit about you and where you grew up, John.
0: Well, John, I'm a Melbourne boy. I've lived in Melbourne all my life. I grew up in the eastern suburbs and went to school in the eastern suburbs. Melbourne is where I grew up and I've lived here all my life. It's somewhere I think I'll always live. I don't see any reason to live anywhere else. It's a great city. It's a vibrant city. It's a multicultural city. It's a pretty special place. No
1: doubt. And having been there many times, I do love the city. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the line of work where you are today at McCrae.
0: What I do, John, as you know, but just to explain it fairly succinctly, is I'm what's called a buyer's advocate. And that essentially means that clients come to me, and if they're potential owner occupiers, they tell me what they want to do from a real estate perspective in terms of where they want to live what sort of house they want to buy, the mechanics of that, price bracket, number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, Where, where if they've got a family, where the kids are want to go, going to want to go to school, where they're going to want to go to work, where they will be going to work. And then I put together what I describe as a brief, and then I go out and find that property right. for them. We send that brief without any of their details to the real estate agents, that is, who we have built up a relationship with in many instances over 20, 30 years or more. And that relationship is something that we leverage on in terms of securing properties before it hits the market. And that is the second source of attack, if you like, in terms of sourcing properties for those clients.
1: What are some of the challenges about buying a property for an expat when they're not going to be in a position to inspect the property?
0: It's a very good question, and as you can imagine, it's a question that I've had addressed to me many times before. Mm -hmm. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was much more difficult than it is today, but technology is our friend. And Google Maps, Google Earth, is the answer to many of the simplistic questions that they may have in terms of you know, proximity to public transport, proximity to shops, proximity to schools, all of those questions are very easily answered without even reference to me, quite frankly. Okay. The answer in terms of the individual asset itself is quite often answered by 20 internal photographs of the property, a floor plan, a site plan, and then I'll inspect the, the particular property in question. And so the client is essentially armed and furnished with a very, very substantial amount of information. It's worth telling the story about the one client who did not decide to leave that those investigations to me and decided to jump on a plane and actually view the asset before buying it. And I went through all of that, work, as I always do. They weren't in in New Zealand, they weren't in in Singapore, they weren't in Hong Kong, they were in London. And so they literally decided to buy it at 10 o'clock at night, got on a plane at 6am the next day, got off the plane 24 hours, 26 hours later, got in a taxi, drove drove out to the property, inspected it for half an hour, rang me and said, yes, John, it's exactly what all the photos and the floor plan and your description confirmed it to be, went <laughs> to see their mother-in-law and got on the plane that night and went back to London.
1: So a lot of value flying, you know, 48 hours round trip, I guess.
0: I think that that particular instance basically says it all, that it's completely unnecessary if I'm doing my job properly mm. for a client to need to get into a, onto a plane and come to Australia.
1: That's wonderful, and it's very comforting to potential expats coming to Melbourne to, to get that sense from you. I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about what else McRae does as a business broadly.
0: Before I explain that, I should say what I, sort of a little bit about me. My business partner and I, we both had the same qualification, and it's a little bit unusual. We're both licensed estate agents. We are both registered valuers. Mm -hmm. And that is very, very unusual in the sense that I don't know any other registered valuers in Melbourne and I don't know any others in Australia, frankly, who undertake the challenge of being a buyer's advocate. It's very surprising to us that there are no other valuers who do what we do. One of the crucial portions of what we do is not just to identify the asset that we're trying to purchase for a client but it's to determine what it's worth and that's where our valuation background our valuation skills our valuation analysis really comes to the fore i mean if a property's worth say 3 million dollars it is quite common for the agent to quote that property at between 2.4 and 2.7 million dollars as an example in other words they will bait the Perspective purchases with good news that it's going to sell cheaply. Mm-hmm. Now, if you rely as a potential purchaser on the advice you get from the selling agent, you'll be looking for ever and a day because the property will invariably sell for more than what the estate agent tells you it's worth. We completely ignore what the agent tells us, as any buyer should, and rely purely and simply on analysis of comparable sales evidence. In other words, we value the asset.
1: So I guess that means that you will advise somebody to stop at a certain point or you won't go beyond a certain point on a recommendation?
0: Absolutely. But the first question is, is should we buy the asset? Mm -hmm. If the answer to that question is yes, the next question is, what is the real value of that asset? Both of those questions are are analytical in nature and can be resolved.
1: Got it. I'd just like to pick up on something you said earlier about your level of connectivity with local real estate agents and knowing which properties might come onto the market without being advertised.
0: Sure. I'd suggest we would buy approximately 15% of our properties off market. And that's year on year, good markets and bad markets combined. I mean, some advocates will suggest they buy a significantly greater percentage than that. And frankly, I don't believe them.
1: Thank you. Another question I have is often we hear people who may be returning to Australia as expats would send a relative around on auction day to put a bid in. So my question is the difference between sending mum or dad or a brother around on auction day versus having a professional up against the auctioneer in a sense. Uh, Maybe you could touch on that because I imagine that's quite an important distinction.
0: Oh, it's crucial, absolutely crucial. And in a market like we're currently in, which is, as I've been alluding to, quite soft, I would suggest that eight out of ten properties are passed in.
1: And passed in means for the person who doesn't know what the expression is?
0: The term passed in means that prospective purchaser who makes the highest bid, the property is passed in to them in the sense that they are given the first right of refusal at the vendor's reserve price. So what happens, in a, as I'm sure you know, John, In a practical sense, the vendor and purchaser are taken inside by the estate agent. The vendor says, Well, look, essentially, via the estate agent, that you didn't breach my reserve price. I want XYZ more money. Otherwise, I'll try and sell it to someone else. So, in that instance, mum and dad acting on behalf of expat relation overseas have probably never done what they need to do in that instance, and that is to negotiate with the highly professional estate agent who's acting on behalf of the vendor. I do that twice a week, 50 weeks a year, and it's a question of knowing exactly what to do in that instance. And it may well be to say, well, look, thank you very much, Mr Vendor. I really think you're being totally unrealistic. And I mean to say this to the agent, look, you're being totally unrealistic. You've just had a competitive auction in the street. You want $200,000 more than my highest bid. I'll give you one last opportunity to revise your reserve price. Otherwise, we're walking away.
1: Which I think is an excellent example of why using a professional in this situation doesn't cost you money, if anything makes you money. So I've always been an advocate buyer's agents, particularly in situations where, you know, you have a client not in the country and doesn't really understand the rules of the game. So thank you for explaining that. I think it would probably be useful to explain a charging model for an expat who would like to uh, have a buyer's agent work for them, but it's never really engaged one and doesn't really understand the economics of it. So maybe you might just touch on that for us, John.
0: Sure. John, we have a model whereby we don't have a percentage-based fee. We have a fixed fee in every instance. And it's really going to be contingent upon the individual job that we're charged to carry out and where it is. And it's not just the money. It might well be the location. For instance, if we're required to buy a beach house on the Mornington Peninsula, which is going to require substantial travel time and really every time we do that it takes a day out of our life the fee might be different even though the budget is identical for something that we're trying to buy in Melbourne so very happy to negotiate the fee in every instance you know we're not the cheapest advocate in Melbourne we're not the most expensive either but what we do what I can say is that We don't take any money up front, which I think is important, and we only charge upon success whereby the client is required to pay a fee two weeks after a contract is signed.
1: Okay. Well, that's clear.
0: The only other thing to add to that is that the client is required to sign what's called a sole agency agreement, which essentially commits them to our firm because the only thing we have to sell is our time and expertise
1: sure and i can imagine you know you don't want five people on the job that sounds pretty normal away from the business of buyers agencies perhaps onto expat land what are some of the highlights of living in melbourne and uh, coming to live in melbourne that you'd like to tell someone
0: look melbourne is a great city if you love food it's got the greatest selection of restaurants in the country. Every nationality just about under the sun is represented. And it's a wonderful diaspora of cultures that we have in this city. It's increasingly important, in my view, of a city of over 5 million people, which Melbourne is, to be able to get from A to B in a reasonable period of time. And you can actually do that In Melbourne, certainly, with all due respect, John, better than Sydney.
1: I'm not going to advocate Sydney traffic over Melbourne traffic. I love getting around in Melbourne. It's a very organised system.
0: But also, not just from a traffic perspective, but particularly from a public transport perspective, which is even more important, both from trains and trams, and I think that's incredibly important. And um, also, culturally, the number of galleries and theatres and It's important in many ways from a family perspective. I mean, I've got a a son and daughter in their 20s and they are, I'm hopeful, both likely to work all their lives in Melbourne because it's a city that offers opportunities to people to work in big organisations. So Melbourne is, is a great city. It's got great wine great country within about a 45 minute drive beaches aren't as good as Sydney unfortunately you have us there John but um, great skiing as well but it's a great city to live in it's a great place
1: so that's a lot of the good stuff perhaps you can tell us what do you think are some of the challenges that an expat faces coming to live in Melbourne
0: John that's a very good question look in my view someone coming from overseas, should look to have to use the famous Australian term a dollar each way. Now by that I mean this they should not look to change themselves. they should not look to change their culture in any substantial fashion. They should look to be themselves. I mean if they're French, Italian, Venezuelan, whatever, they should maintain their culture, they should be themselves and they'll be able to be themselves. That's one of the great delights about coming to not just Melbourne, but coming to Australia. You'll be able to do that. Having said that, you don't want to just socialise with people from your homeland. If you wanted to do that, you may as well stay where you actually don't leave. Why are you coming to a new country, be it Australia or anywhere else? So the challenges are don't change yourself, don't change who you are. But to be more accepted as a member of Australian society, you probably need to meld in and to a degree. And how do you do that? Well, Australia is a sport-mad country, it's fair to say, and Melbourne in particular is, is what's called an AFL, Australian Football League, mad society. So the first thing you should do is to is to, I mean this might sound crazy, but you should adopt a football team. So when someone asks you the question, who do you barrack for? If you've been in the country two weeks and you say I barrack for whoever, you will be astonished at the size of the smile you'll get in response. Simple thing, but do it. Then If you play sport, start playing sport as soon as you can, Whether tennis or golf or whatever. If you've got kids at school, join whatever committees are available. Just try and meet as many people as you possibly can and talk to them. And if that means going out to dinner, but just talk to them. Just talk to them. And that's the best advice I can give anyone.
1: John, from a cultural perspective, are there some observations you have about what an expat should or should not do to fit in with people they work with
0: in Melbourne? Sure, John. In my view, Australians are a society that respects opinions from people at different levels within the organisation and it's very common for people at higher levels to draw people in from lower levels and to consider their view, to not disregard that opinion in any way, shape or form and to respect it, certainly to their face, mm-hmm. yeah. and it may it may well not result in mm-hmm. significant action, but it's very uh, egalitarian system that we have in Australia that may not be as represented overseas to the same degree and it's something that I think the expats should be fairly mindful of.
1: Thanks, John. And in terms of, say, giving negative feedback in Melbourne, what's the best way for an expat who may be in a leadership role to give that negative feedback to someone who works for them?
0: John, the Australians are pretty straightforward. I wouldn't say simplistic, but they're pretty straightforward people. In other words, cut to the chase, don't sort of sugarcoat the message that everything else is going really well, even if it is going really well. Just hit the nail on the head in terms of what the message you're really trying to convey is to the person. Well, that's
1: good advice. That's the same, I would say, in Sydney or Brisbane, you know, that's pretty much it. So just back on to expat land tell us a little bit what's it about the expat land global network that made you want to join the thing Uh,
0: the thing that attracted me to expat land was the the fact that i guess one of the great attractions was dealing with expats and knowing that we've been able to service the concept is and i really enjoy working with expats because expats doesn't matter the nationality, they tend to be, in my experience, highly intelligent. It's sort of been a refreshing experience and it's always been a cross fertilisation of ideas and thoughts and broadening of the mind. I think it's going to be, in years to come, a very successful organisation and I'm very keen to be a part of it.
1: Well, thank you. It's good to have your support and obviously have great property. Uh, part of our Melbourne e-team. Just in terms of your business, how does somebody engage with you and what sort of information do they need to give you about them and their situation beforehand?
0: Oh, It's very easy. John, an initial email from via contact details would be on our website, on the Expatland website as well, of course. We can arrange a Zoom meeting and take it from there.
1: Thanks, John. So away from work, what are some of the things you like to do? In Melbourne,
0: I sort of love going to restaurants, I have to say, John.
1: That's a hobby. <laughs>
0: I'm succeeding in that hobby, John. Love going to some galleries, love travelling, planning a trip next year overseas, love holidays, love watching sport, cricket, football, tennis, and walking in the botanical gardens. That's a good note
1: to end on, and if you just tell us roughly what gate you go in... <laughs> anyone who's coming to Melbourne who wants a personal sort of tour of the park and also get some property advice, I suggest you get there about 7.45 with your runners. (laughs) Thanks, John, for your time today. Your insights about moving to Melbourne were much appreciated and I'm sure everyone listening to the podcast got a lot out of it. Thanks again. Thank you, John. Thank you all for listening to us today. We look forward to you joining us next time as we continue to showcase how our members can help you move overseas my name is john McCarian, and i'm always ready to hear from you with any questions that you have please contact me via our website expatland.com enjoy the journey